shouldn't raise your children to believe that they can be Beyonce, because the chances are they can't. Will Storer is an award-winning author of six critically acclaimed books. His ideas are disruptive, challenging, and life-changing. And some of them will make you feel incredibly uncomfortable. People don't like to talk about this stuff. 99% of self-help books never mention genes. They want to promote that idea of, well, I can be whoever I want to be. But a huge amount of who we are is who we were born as. That myth of you have full control over yourself as a human being. That's the problem. It's not about embracing your flaws. It's about accepting your flaws. Our lives are full of status pursuit. The more status that you earn, the better everything else gets. But that was true 10,000 years ago. It's true today. The brain is highly attuned to where we sit in a pecking order. The lower we are down in that pecking order, the more unhealthy we became. If you take two smokers, the one higher up is less likely to die of a smoking-related disease than the one lower down. That's mental. It matters massively. How do we advance in the status game? There are kind of three general types of status games that we can play. First game is a... Without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is The Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. Will, first of all, thank you for being here. Um... Take me right back then to your early years, because I think when, when I was reading through your different books here, throughout them, you have glimpses of your own perspective and it, mm. it hints back to what I read about your your early years. Mm. Um, so take me back, right back to the start, you know, before the age of, let's say, 12. Mm. Okay, so yeah, um, I was brought up in Tunbridge Wells in Kent Um middle-class family, very Catholic. Um, it was quite a Victorian, um, strict, superstitious, religious upbringing. Not the happiest upbringing, I have to say. Why? Um, because my parents were very strict. My father was very strict, especially. Um, and uh, they were very much in the grip of their kind of Catholic belief system, which I just didn't never like always baffled me even as a kid. It's like, what, how, how, you know, how can you believe this stuff? And I went to a Catholic school. So, so, and I was quite a, I was probably a difficult, if you were to ask them, they'd say I was a difficult child um, because I was pushing against that all the time. You know, I thought it was crazy. I wasn't very good at authority and rules. So it was a bad fit, I would say. Um, and I think that's what's, you know, one of the things that, that's kind of driven my interests into adulthood, my, you know, my, my, my second book, The Heretics, was looking at why do otherwise smart people believe, end up believing these crazy things? Because my parents are smart people. But um, yeah, you know, they believe in heaven, hell, Satan, all of that stuff. I, I think that's how my childhood has informed my interests as an adult, trying to figure out how, how that happens. In your, in your book, Selfie, you, you talk a lot about self-esteem. Mm -hmm. and the role that plays. What was your, give me the context of your, how your self-esteem was shaped in those early years. <laughs> ah, well, um, how it was shaped in those early years, I guess it was poorly would be the answer. Um, I think the, you know, because my behaviour was not great, the continual message I would get from teachers and parents was that you're, you know, you're a bad person, you're going to end up in prison, you're going to end up in care. Um, 
yeah, so so, so so there was very little kind of positive feedback in my in my childhood, which I think is that that causes damage that you're never going to get over. I, I believe. Do you think you you never get over that damage? Yes, because I, I think you know we're all born with a certain kind of personality, with a certain genome, and that that's not fate. That doesn't define who you're going to be forever. Um, but 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 it sets you on a certain course. It makes you vulnerable to a certain kind of mindset um and you know it, i think a good childhood a good upbringing can you know correct that to a certain degree but a bad one can can set it on a sort of negative course and i'm quite a neurotic person i'm anxious I, i've always worried a lot so so when if you take that kind of natural personality type high neuroticism and add into that a childhood which kind of reinforces that sense that the world is dangerous, that people are out to get you, all of that stuff, that, 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 that reality isn't safe. I, 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 and then, you know, what happens is your brain is still being formed really up until you, in your mid-20s. You know, that, that it's in your mid-20s when, when, when those kind of learning processes um, uh, stop. And so it's very hard and probably, I would argue, probably impossible to reverse 18 years of that kind of feedback once it's happened, because that's those are the years in which your brain is learning how the world works, and and, and so yeah, so I, I don't think it's fixable. That, that's one of the the ongoing um, conversations or debates or things that I've kind of been chewing over from doing this podcast and and listening to to people from all walks of life that have achieved amazing things that still have um, underlying trauma or sort of self stories that are controlling their 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 life and their behaviour. And I, I, I spend a long time talking to people about whether you can ever truly eradicate some of these traumas they're like the puppet master that's in the back room <laughs> controlling your, your your biases and all these things and my conclusion over the last literally weeks has been that we can diminish the power that our early traumas have over us but they're always going to be there and is that is that where you find find yourself but in terms of your belief that we can diminish the power of yeah. those stories but they'll always be there Absolutely. That, yeah. That's exactly right. That, that, that's what I believe. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That we, we can definitely diminish their power. And, I, you, you know, I'm 47 now and it still amazes me that you, you still, you never stop learning and you never stop learning about yourself. You never stop learning about things you get wrong and I've got to stop doing that. You know, mm. it's overly simplistic to think of consciousness as this battle between reason and emotion. Um, uh, but, but, but there is something like that going on, you know, like, like our emotionality is usually in charge of what we're thinking and what we're doing. You know, we respond emotionally and that voice in your head then tells a story about what you're feeling. And usually it's to justify that emotion. It's to say, yes, you were right to feel like that. You were right to respond in anger and hostility at that person. And then the next day you think, oh, maybe it wasn't, (laughs) (laughs) you know, know, so, so, um, I think, what we call, what we used to call reason, that reasonable voice in your head actually often isn't reasonable. It's just justifying and um, validating your initial emotional response, which is, you know, sometimes right, sometimes wrong. So, so I think what you're doing when you're learning, for me anyway, is you're, is you're learning actually, I mean, almost a parent yourself to, to, to turn that voice in your head into a someone that isn't going to be a harsh judge or... Uh, on the other extreme, someone who's just going to accept and validate and defend everything, every behaviour you do, every thought you have, every mistake you, ma- you make. You're looking for that that balance all the time. And then you're looking to spot, I think you're looking to spot those occasions on which you're making the same mistake over and over again, you know. Have you got a harsh judge in your head? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I have. I, I you know, I'm so I, I'm self-employed. I've been a, I've been a writer for, you know, without an employer for 20 years. You, you, you kind of, I think you have to have a harsh judge to get yourself out of bed, to get yourself in front of the computer, <laughs> to do eight hours plus work a day. Um, so so, so I, I think to, it's kind of weird. I think, I think to achieve any, anything significant, you've got to, there's got to be a harsh, harshness to, I'm just trying to think whether judge is the right, right word. Like I read recently that the ideal parent is kind of firm, but also kind and caring and understanding. And I, and I think that's what, I think that's, if that's the ideal parent, I think that's really, that, 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 that's, that's the ideal of who should be inside our own heads, really. You've got to have that balance. Um, and, and I think you can, you can go, you can go wrong in either direction. Your book, Selfie. Yeah. Um, what was the, I mean, I love the name. It was very <laughs> of the time in 2017 as well. It was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what was the inspiration behind writing this book? Right. So the book before that was called The Heretics. And The Heretics was, as, as I said before, it's going to be inspired by this idea of what, how do smart people end up believing crazy things? And, and so that, that book was all about when we have these stubborn beliefs that kind of, that, that, that are irrational that we don't let go of. So I was hanging out with Holocaust deniers. I was hanging out with creationists, UFO believers, people like this. Um, and then in the promotion for that, I was asked again and again and again by people. So what makes people change their minds? You're saying that people can never change their minds. And I didn't have an answer to that question. I was going to have to bluff through it. So I thought, well, that's, you know, I don't understand that. So um, maybe I should try and find out. So I was a journalist at the time as a day job. And so I started interviewing lots of people who changed their minds, like in big, dramatic, kind of powerful ways. Um, one of those guys um, was this uh, amazing psychologist called Professor Roy Baumeister. Um, he spent his kind of early professional career in the self-esteem era of the 80s, you know, when, and this is the era I was brought up to, when everything was about self-esteem. It was all about that the kind of message out there was, if you want to be successful, just love yourself. You're amazing. You're fantastic. You can do anything that you want. You know, it was Whitney Houston. Um, the greatest love of all is yourself. It was, it was that kind of era. And I remember it from school. I remember like, you know, the teacher saying to me, the problem with you, Will, is you just have low self-esteem. And they used to call self-esteem a social vaccine. And if you, if you loved yourself, it, it would meant that you would be more successful. You'd be happier. You'd have a better marriage. And, you know, uh, in America, they, they thought the self-esteem was going to solve homelessness um, the gang culture, um, teenage parenthood was a big moral panic of the time. And they thought it was going to cure that. So, and he was like, well, is it true? Is this actually true? And so they looked into it and they found actually that there was no evidence that, that any of this was true, that, that every study that quoted it as being true just referenced another study. And he, and he went in this breadcrumb trail of studies. They were all just quoting each other and there was no actual evidence any of this is true. And they, tested, they, they actually tested to see whether that self-esteem myth was true or not. Um, and it wasn't, um, it wasn't true. <laughs> um, it, it was, it was originally based on this idea that they, this, this, this observation that, um, school children who did well in exams also had high self-esteem. So they assumed that having high self-esteem made you good at exams, but actually <laughs> they had high self-esteem because they'd done good in their exams. It was, it was the other way around. Yeah. God, this is obvious in retrospect, but that's what they, you know, so that, that was the error they made correlation causation that old chestnut um so so, so he um um published this study and the initial response was just you know it was absolutely torn to pieces 
Um, it was either ignored or attacked. Um, but slowly he was proven to be right. And so when I was, I, I wrote a profile of Baumeister and, um, it, it, you know, he was a fascinating guy. Um, and then what, what I realized was that this idea had um, not just changed a person, but it changed a culture. Like the whole culture of the West, Britain, America, Canada, and lots of Europe. When I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, we were just obsessed with this idea. And it's just, it was just wrong. It's completely wrong. So that was the, that's the heart of selfie. It was just like this, this idea of, you know, how did selfie culture happen? How did we become so self-obsessed? And, and the self-esteem movement is, was a big part of that story. And it's the kind of, it's the, it's the kind of central story of the book. Chapter zero. Yeah. Um, the dying self. Mm. Was, a, was quite difficult to read. Ah, oh, okay, yeah. I thought it was a very, um, you know, you explore topics like suicide and um, your own sort of self-doubt and things like that and um, your own suicidal ideation at times. Why, why did you choose to start the book in that way? I suppose I wanted to start the book there to show, you know, why this matters. You know, wh wh where I ended up with the book was... The, this idea that we live, that we are in the West individualists. Yeah, you know, we see the world as made up of individual pieces and parts and we are individually responsible for our fates. We're individually responsible for our success and our failure. And there's lots of good things to say about that. You know, it's, it's, it's an extremely motivating way of organising your thoughts, organising your life. Um, you know, I am responsible for me and, and I will take care of me. Um, but it's also kind of savage, you know, uh, and um, it, it, it means, you know, that, that kind of Western myth we have is that, um, you know, that you can do anything that you want, just put your mind to it, you can achieve it, that, that, that kind of mindset. Um, but, but very often we fail. <laughs> and so if it's true that you're responsible for your success, then it only logically follows that you're also um, responsible for your failure. Um, and so um, these individualistic ideas accelerated in the 1980s. And that was because of a variety of things. It was the self-esteem movement partly, but the self-esteem movement became successful because we, because of the Thatcher-Reagan revolution is my argument, neoliberalism, that we changed the economies of the West. We changed the game. You know, uh, before the 1980s, we were much more collective. It was much more, um, you know, socialist. Even in America, the top rate of tax was 90%. You know, it's extraordinary. Uh, um, so, so, but, and, and then the economy started going wrong in the 70s. So the neoliberal revolution happened. And, and the idea, the central idea that, you know, Reagan and Thatcher pursued was we're going to increase competition wherever we can to reduce the social safety net, privatise everything. Just everyone's got to be competitive. And it changed who we are. You know, it... it when you change the rules of the game of life, you change the people who play that game, which is what my latest book is about, really. Uh, and so we became more um, competitive as a people. And, and what's, what psychologists find is a major study that found that since um, the, you know, the onset of neoliberalism, levels of perfectionism have increased massively in the UK, in America and in Canada uh, and um, perfectionism is implicated in suicidal ideation, in eating disorders, in steroid abuse and, you know, and self-harm and so on and so on and so on. So, so that's why I wanted to begin the book there to show why this matters. You know, it isn't just a kind of abstract academic exploration of the self. You know, I wanted to begin with this is how it affects people. If perfectionism can be quite an insidious um, issue in Western cultures where 
we're getting more individualistic. What is a better approach do you think to take for, what is a better message to share with society and the world about, um, about that? Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I like the idea of, you know, I think the idea that I kind of develop is in selfie, partly it's about self-acceptance rather than self-love. I think self-love um, is that, you know, I used to be a massive fan of Big Brother when Big Brother was on. Really? And, I, and, and there was always this thing in Big Brother where um, somebody would behave completely obnoxiously. They'd be like rude, aggressive, just deeply unpleasant. And they, they would always defend themselves in the same way. they go, well, I'm just being me. That's just me. And if you don't like me, you know, and, and I think that's, that's the self-esteem movement talking. It's like, I'm, I'm going to be my authentic self. And if you can't handle that, that's on you. And I think that's wrong. You know, you know we're a social animal. We've, we, we have evolved to exist cooperatively. And I think when individualism, I think there's a lot to say in its defense, but when it goes too far, that's where it becomes. It becomes that kind of screw you um, mindset. So I think self-acceptance is different than self-love. Self-acceptance is I'm flawed, broken animal, <laughs> you know, as we all are. And, you know, a little like what we were talking about earlier on, it's about being that harsh but loving parent rather than that rather than being your own defense lawyer, mm. you know, being, being that kind of harsh, but loving parent and being accepted, you know, ha having this acceptance that you are a flawed and limited animal. Like, you know, you, you, you shouldn't raise your children to believe that they can be, be Beyonce if they want to be Beyonce, because the chances are they can't. She's like an extraordinarily talented and driven individual. She's the one in a billion, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you, you know, you, so I think that's an unhealthy message to by which to raise our children and also, you know, talk to ourselves. And it's much more about understanding our, our, our strengths, our flaws, and kind of finding the right games to play, find that, that little corner of the world in which we can feel um, of value. I think that's that. That's what we should be trying to do. Had your parents told you that you were Beyonce, and had those schools told you that you were Beyonce, <laughs> would you have been happier? Do you think? Um, I mean, I, I was sometimes told that that I could succeed at school, but I just wasn't applying myself, and it's such that's a waste. A it's such a waste. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's so weird, the school thing. I, I mean, I have to say, I think I went to a really bad school. I, I, it, um, it was a comprehensive school. Um, you know, you hear these stories about teachers that inspire you. And oh, if it wasn't for this teacher, I never had that teacher. <laughs> they were all just really bored and resentful. <laughs> I remember going to class and there was one teacher who just open his folder. Where were we? He'd read, <laughs> read from his folder for about 50 minutes and that would be the history lesson. You know, uh, and that, that was the school I went to. It was miserable. And, I, and I'm, I, I always wanted to be a writer. And I was always in trouble. I was always this sort of problem student. And I had this English teacher who was quite nice called Mr. Lanaway. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to write, start writing short stories in my spare time and I'm going to give them to my English teacher. It's just a way of getting like, look, you know, I've written this thing. And so I gave him a, a couple. And, then I, and I think I gave him number three, uh, you know, after you know, on a third weekend, thinking that, I, that he was, oh, in my head, he was thinking, oh, Will's, you know, William has found this thing that he's actually applying himself to. How amazing. And he said to me, oh, you know, this is all just extra work for me, don't you? Like that. So he kind of scolded me for giving him extra work to do. So I stopped, I stopped writing those, you know, short stories. And, and I just think if, I, if, I, if I'd have actually been encouraged to be, I was never encouraged to be a writer by my school or, you know, I, I wrote a school magazine and that, that caused me all kinds of trouble as well. <laughs> so so, so I, was, I, I never actually had any encouragement. And I, I do kind of think if I was actually encouraged, um, to be a writer, I would have probably got there sooner and probably been a better writer today.
Well, on that point of Beyonce, though, it seems to me that if someone had turned around to you and said, you, you are Beyonce and you can do anything, you could be an amazing writer, <laughs> it seems to me that, that that actually might have helped. Yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> but, that, but that's what I mean about identifying your strengths. Like, I think for me, writing was a strength, but nobody ever... And, and if that was identified... And if somebody said to me, God, you know, you should carry on writing. these." It, it, literally, if one person, one adult said to me, these short stories, are, you know, they show real promise. You should carry on writing these. It would have blown my mind. I'd have, got, I'd have definitely carried on. Um, but I just stopped, you know, I just stopped. Uh, I, I, so, so, yeah, but that's what I mean. It's, I, I think the mistake is um, somebody when I, in the research for selfie, this Harvard psychologist, Brian Little, said it's the myth of unlimited control, that myth of you can, you can, you know, you have full control over your yourself as a human being, and that means that you can do anything. That's the problem, you know. That's the problem. And, and but actually, I think what, what what you should do is identify what is this person passionate about, you know, and what are they actually what are they actually good at. And if and, and if and if and if somebody saw promise in me as a journalist or a writer, then that that's what they they should have encouraged me in. But it was actually just a battle. In um in the in the chapter the good self in that book chapter four you talk about um, the different forces that are controlling our behaviour mm. and uh, it made me think I've you know that I've also had this this ongoing thought about how control of of my life I over what the forces are that are actually controlling my life because we tend to believe obviously as we would from this first person view that I'm making my decisions but when I <laughs> it sounds quite I don't care I'm going to say it. When I reflect on the stories I've heard from men regarding their behavior before they've ejaculated and after <laughs> they've ejaculated, it is pretty, it's, and I actually said this in like podcast number four, mm. when no one was actually listening and it was just me and under the stairs in Manchester. I said, the change that I saw in my behavior or how I felt before and after ejaculation is extreme. Yeah. And I watched Rogan talk about this. He described it as being before ejaculation at the back of the bus mm. and you're just fucking being swung around. The, he said, it's foggy, <laughs> there's papers everywhere. And, and then he says, post ejaculation, it's like you zoom forward onto the wheel of the bus and go, oh fuck, what was going yes. on there? Yeah. And you gain yeah. back control. Yeah, And just this, um, it for me, that was one of the clearest signs that my decision-making is not as intentional as I thought it was. No, yeah. Um, and you talk about that kind of thing a little bit in that chapter. Do you talk about a study where um, men are asked um, a variety of different questions while they're masturbating? Mm. Can you can you share that study and also like what you learned from it about the way that we make our decisions? <laughs> well, I haven't, that, that was, I haven't read about that study for a good five years now, but I think it was something about, they were asked a series of questions about um, were they asked a series of questions about what they would do in certain? Yeah, it's like the sexual preferences. So yeah, it's like, would you would you be attracted to an animal? Would you? Be That's a, it. You know, yeah, quite yeah. Disturbing. And I think before they'd masturbated, their their answers were much more extreme in the direction of yes, I would have sex with an animal. Yes, I would pressure somebody into having sex than they would after um, masturbation. And I think most men can can read that study and go. You can relate a little bit to mm. not not that I'm saying that you know most men would have sex with an animal, obviously, <laughs> but 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 how our how our um, how our thinking is different, and 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 you know, and and, and I love studies like that because it, I th I feel like it, you know, when, when we when, when we when we feel a different way, we do almost become a different person. Like I remember writing in selfie about um, 
you know, when I'm trying to lose weight again. And on Monday morning, I'm absolutely resolute. It's like, I'm going to keep my calories down. I'm going to exercise every day. I am a machine. I'm a stoic. I'm athletic. You know, that's who I am. But by Friday evening, I'm just like, oh, sod it. I'm going to get a I need to have some chips. You know, and it's like, it's not just that you feel a different way. It's almost that you've become a different person. But which, I mean, you have a different personality. You're much more loose and happy and good to be around on Friday than you're on Monday when you're like that. Uh, but you have a different value system. The, on Monday, I value this set of things. I value discipline and yeah. order and structure. And on Friday evening, I value fun and laughter and pleasure. So, it's, it's, so, so it is that we almost, you know, I think pre and post ejaculation, we almost become a different person. Monday, Monday morning versus Friday night, we become different people. So I think that, you know, we, we, we're so fluid in, in who we are, depending on how we're feeling. We don't want to be there. No, it's not how we think of ourselves. We think of ourselves as a, yeah, a certain kind of person. Yeah, with, with as, as a certain boxed in set of values and behaviors i think you know there's probably somewhere above 50 percent of people listening that can relate to that monday issue of you know on monday i am you know a greek god and i am <laughs> disciplined and i am everything i'll become everything i want to be on by you know by next week um and then something happens how does i would be remiss if i didn't ask mm. what can you tell us about how to stop or how to maintain or be consistent as our Monday selves. Is there anything you've learned about the psychology there that might help us to be our Monday selves come Friday? So in, in Selfie, I write about um, how important it is to change our environment rather than try and, rather than change, try and change ourself. Mm. Uh, I, 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 and and the, kind of the, the kind of story that I tell is, I, I call it the, the lizard and the iceberg, where if you take a lizard from the desert and pop it on an iceberg, it's going to be a very unhappy lizard. If you put it back in the desert, it's going to be happy and thriving and wonderful. And nothing has changed in the lizard. It's the environment that's changed. And I, and I, and I think part of being an individualist and we, is that we look into, into ourselves, to our behaviour, to um, explain the causes of our behaviour. But actually, you know, so much of, of, um, of our behaviour is controlled by what's going on around us by, by our environment. You know, and, and the reason we feel, you know, Friday on Friday is because it's Friday. And that has a cultural resonance. That is Friday night. Yeah, thank, thank fuck it's Friday. And, and we've done five days of work, so we feel different. Um, so, so I think a lot of it is about changing your environment. You know, there is a lot to say about, you know, if you take yourself to the gym, you've changed your environment. Yeah. Um, if, you, um, if you can change, certainly with things like weight loss, I mean, it's a lesson I never seem to learn, but do not have that stuff in the house. Oh my God, it will amen. guarantee yeah. that you will eat it. Um, yeah. You know, it's 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 a drug, uh, and and so 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 I think I I, th I think maintain your environment to maintain yourself. You know, I I, th I think that's that that that's one of the one of the key takeaways that I've learned. How to stay alive in the age of perfectionism? How does one stay alive? One of the interesting things in that chapter was um, you kind of debunk this idea that alcoholism, for example, and a lot of these things, you know, that I've spoken to guests about on this podcast that they've suffered with, um, don't necessarily stem from having a unhappy childhood. Mm. I've got a friend that, you know, is very public about the fact that he became an alcoholic. And um, I, I guess I believed it was because of traumatic early events. I, I tended to believe that that was the case, but you debunk that quite clearly. Um, 
and and kind of assert that personality is the causal factor in in most of our predispositions. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I've that, that, that I've learned, um, well, that certainly learned from research in that book was the, just the incredible power of personality and the incredible power of the, of, of, of our genes. Um, it's really people don't like to talk about this stuff, and um, because it it it. it they, they feel it's disempowering. So whenever you read a self-help book, most of them, 99% of self-help books never mention genes because it's unhelpful. They, they want to promote that idea of 100% self-control. I can be whoever I want to be. Um, but, 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 but genes are so important. Uh, and as I said, it's not that they di- dictate who we are or, you know, or um, you're, you're, you're born with a kind of blueprint and that's all you're ever going to be. Um, but, but you are born with a certain kind of genome, you know, with a certain level of likely neuroticism, openness to experience, extroversion, um, agreeableness, you know, how, how kind of happy or kind of angry and competitive you are and so on. And so you're born kind of with a certain prevailing wind and then your childhood experiences mostly um, will um, do the rest of that wiring up. So by the time you're in your, in, in your kind of twenties, you're kind of who you are, like not hundred percent because still traumatic experiences can break you to pieces. You know, you're, you, know, you know, lots of things can change, but you're kind of who you are. As I said, pe- you know, people don't like that idea because it really goes against our individualist kind of credo of you can be Beyonce if you want to be. But it is nevertheless true that, that a huge amount of who we are is just how we were, who, who we were born as, you know, and I've got that addictive personality. I was an alcoholic. I haven't, I, I had to give up drinking when I was 26 because I'd lost control of how much I was drinking. And I still struggle with kind of, you know, sugar now. I, I, I've swapped booze for sugar is, is my problematic behavior, which is much easier to manage. Um, so, so, so I get it. And, 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 but, but, but yeah, it's, it's not, it's, I, I think part of the fact that with these storytelling animals, um, I think, uh, since seventies, since probably this, well, even the sixties, we've had this kind of um, therapy culture which wants to go archaeological digging in our pasts for the causes of our um, all of our problems. And you know, I, I think there's a, th- th- there is a certain amount of um, truth to that stuff. Like I, I, I'm, I'm sure our childhoods affect us. Um, but, but, um, there are, we, we tend to blame everything on our childhoods, everything on our parents. And and I think alcoholism is one of those things that it's mostly genetic. You know, you've either got that problem with addiction or you don't. Could it, can it, can it be accelerated by trauma though? Because, you know, when I, when I speak to psychologists, they often talk about it it being a form of escapism, Mm. um, in many ways and other drugs and, you know, other self-medications being a form of like trying to escape pain or trauma. Definitely. Yeah. I think how to think about it is that it's, um, you can have a vulnerability to it. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's the genetic component. Um, and if something bad happens to you, then you're much more likely to kind of fall into that. Versus track. someone else yeah, who, doesn't have who doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. On that point of storytelling, you mentioned storytelling there in our, um, in our narrative, your, your book in 2019 was about storytelling. I, having worked in marketing, was very compelled to, to read this book for the, probably, you know, we talked before we start recording that a lot of people will see a book about, with the word storytelling on the front mm-hmm. of it and think that they can use it from a marketing capacity or in a business sense. What have you learned about how people can tell great stories in the context of business and marketing? Yeah, well, um, so quite quite a lot. I teach a, I, I teach business storytelling at Section Four, which is a American um, ed tech um, 
organization. So, so, I, so I, I do a, a, a course there on, in the science of storytelling for business. Um, and, and, you know, we, we are storytelling animals. We, we, we think in story. We, we, um, you know, narrative is basically, you know, how we experience ourselves and, and life. And so, as I say in that course, if you're not communicating with story as a marketeer, you, you're, not, you're not communicating. You know, logic and facts and data and statistics, that's not the language of the brain. The language of the brain is beginning, middle and end, a character overcoming obstacles. I think a, lo- a lot of the stuff we've been talking about is important, um, especially um, the idea that people think with their feelings. You know, they th- it's feelings first, story second. The story justifies the feelings. And so if you want to tell persuasive stories you need to first understand exactly who you're communicating with and you need to understand um how they feel about the world how they feel about themselves how they, how they feel about um you know justice and uh, what their values are and so that means understanding them kind of tribally what what groups do they belong to who are their heroes who are their villains what motivates them, what demotivates them. So, so before you can sort of write the story, you need to figure out how they feel about the world. So a bad story then would be one that was, because, you know, I, I thought about this a lot and my previous business was um, very successful in storytelling. So my first company, Social Chain, it's you know, grown to be a very big business, maybe a thousand employees worldwide. We were, um, we started out as a, as a marketing agency, never had a sales team because we, we focused on telling stories. Those stories were told on social media and on stage by me. So when I would go up on stage and talk about our agency to try and win business from mm-hmm. Apple or Coca-Cola, whoever it was, um, I would actually start by talking about me my relationship with my mother. Mm. And that would be the first sentences out of my mouth when I walked on stage. If there was a thousand people or 15,000 people there, it would be about my mother. And through that story about my mother and my, and my um, upbringing and my battles and all those things, eventually you'd learn about our business and what we do and about the great work we do. But that was the preface of it. And that meant we never needed a, 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 um, a sales team. I've always believed that if I'd walked on stage and started with a case study, yes. <laughs> I, would have, I, would have, I would have had to have a sales team at Social Chain yeah, knocking on doors. Definitely. And I think this is one of the biggest mistakes businesses make. When they pitch, when they, when they speak on stage, when they post on social media, I think they have a, they believe that the, the listener wants big numbers and to hear how many views they got for their clients or for, you know, and it just doesn't seem to be consistent with reality. No, it's not. I mean, so what you're doing when you're going into about your mother is you're connecting emotionally. Mm. So people are, you know, wanting, they're on your side immediately and, and you're making them feel good. You're making them feel things emotionally. Um, the, the, the kind of framework that I use for business storytelling is that, is that, is that, you know, essentially people's brains process reality um, in the same way. And that's the, uh, you know, so, so they're the hero of their story. You're not the hero standing on the stage. The company that, that, that's selling to you isn't the hero. They're the hero of their own story. Um, they are, you know, they've got goals they're trying to pursue. We all have, you know, that which are the plots of our lives. The we, audience. Yeah, the audience, the person you're selling to. Um, and then th- 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 there's a brilliant story analyst called Christopher Booker who wrote this amazing book called The Seven Basic Plots. And he writes about... Um, archetypal characters in storytelling that he calls light figures. And so the light figure is, uh, the example he uses are the three ghosts in the 
A Christmas Carol, the Charles Dickens Scrooge story. So Scrooge is the hero of that story. Uh, but the three ghosts come in to show him Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. They help him get what he needs, which is to become a better more selfless, more generous, more loving, giving person. That they, they, so that they are kind of they arrive in his story to kind of show him the way to help him get what he needs, and so that 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 that's what I argue. That's the appropriate position for most companies and organisations and leaders is not to be the hero because your audience feels like they're the hero. You're the light figure. You're there to help them get what they want. So when you go straight in with, here's all my awards, here's what this person said about me, here's some statistics and stuff, you're not a light figure. You're presenting as the hero what people really want to know is how can you help me get what i want and 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 that's that's the story that you have to tell what kind of example can you give me to really make that make me understand that in a real practical sense is there a brand you've seen do this really well is there an example of a i i mean i, I my brain went to nike for some reason yeah yeah well, well that's Oh, Nike is a really interesting example. So, so, so obviously, one of the things that Nike have, has done recently is it's um, done that ad campaign around Colin Kaepernick, which is yeah. you know, controversial, but did them. I think I think they're selling up to like six percent, like uh, after that that ad, that ad campaign, and that's a really good example of um, a, an organisation who is. Um, um, behaving as a light figure. So that Colin Kaepernick campaign has nothing to do with shoes. There's, you know, the, what they're not doing is going, our shoes will make you run 8% faster. We've got these sprung soles. We've got these amazing laces that won't trip you up or whatever. You know, they're, they're, their stats list is not in there. It's, it, it, it's purely, it, they're telling a story. They've figured out that their client base are mostly believing certain, you know, this set of beliefs around the world. Uh, and and those those are goals, you know. People who you know the the, the target audience that they're um, they're uh, appealing to want to achieve this kind of racial social justice, and that's important to them. So so what Nike are basically saying is, you know, we are light figures in this story. We, you know, we we are we we are on the side of the Colin Kaepernicks of the people who are kneeling. You know, we believe that Black Lives Matter. Um, and and so they're presenting as a light figure. And, and if you think about it rationally, it's kind of crazy. Like, why would a shoe company have this political thing? But it's because of the storytelling, because because they're presenting as a light figure who who is engaged in the kind of, you know, this particular mission in the world. And, you know, in, in order to kind of to, 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 to kind of join the mission. You, you buy the Nike shoes and, and, it, and it worked, you know, it works really well. I mean, uh, one of the archetypal examples um, that, that I talk about that I love is uh, that there was um, an ad that was broadcast, I think it was in the 60s by Volkswagen. And it was the first kind of modern ad, ad, advert. It was, the first, it was the first advert that you would look at and recognise as the kind of advertising that we do today. So before this Volkswagen ad, um, Cut, you know, all ads were just stats lists. Here's this amazing, you know, tire, and you know, mm. this will get you naught to sixty and whatever. Um, uh, and then this Volkswagen did this amazing ad where um, it just it was black and white because it was still in the days of black and white. And they had um, it just showed this guy. It was all snowing. It's a big blizzard outside, and this guy gets in his car. He turns. He's like. It's like you know, just before dawn, turns on his ignition, drives his car through the blizzard, through the blizzard, through the blizzard, opens these huge shed doors, and then you hear this big engine start up and out drives his snowplow. And it's, how does the guy who drives the snowplow get to the snowplow? And it's just Volkswagen. And that's a really simple, really effective story. And it's showing Volkswagen as this light figure. We are helping the hero achieve what he wants. 
And, you know, I don't believe that the Volkswagen was particularly good at driving through blizzards. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe that. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, and they certainly weren't making any factual claim in the sense that we are better than Land Rover and whatever, 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 doing this because of this stat. It, that, it was as simple as that. And it revolutionised marketing. It changed everything because they'd figured out that kind of light figure form of storytelling. And in that, are they saying that the Volkswagen Volkswagen enables you to be the hero that exactly, moves the Exactly, yeah. And yes, Nike it, are saying that the Nike shoe, associating it with Colin Kaepernick, mm. enables you to be the social activist hero. Hero, exactly, like yeah. Like Colin yeah. Kaepernick was. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. I was going to change a few things about my, uh, a few of my companies, I think, <laughs> on the basis of that. Yeah, I think, I think we, I think in the course of business, we all forget that emotion is the most important thing. I'm thinking about all the newsletters that my companies have been writing. I've got various companies and the newsletters they write and the videos we make and how, and how sometimes we, we think that facts and figures and information is what the viewer is looking for in their lives. But the most compelling way to draw them in to whatever we're doing, whether it's a newsletter or a tweet or whatever, is by putting emotion first and, and really yeah. thinking about what the emotion of the, the content is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And with the, with the Nike example, I mean, we, we live in, uh, since the global financial crisis, we live in heightened political times. And so, so you know, and, and people are always tribal. And, and, and so, you know, one of the big things that, 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 that successful kind of persuaders do is, is to make those tribal appeals. Um, and, you know, sometimes it works with Colin Kaepernick, like with the Gillette, Razor campaign, it didn't work mm. because you were kind of essentially attacking your target audience. Um, uh, so, so that was, you know, less successful. Um, I think there was a terrible Pepsi ad with Kendall oh, gosh, Jenner, I was thinking about that, where, so. where, 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 where they were kind of basically, yeah, where, where it was just making this, yeah. Well, it put a, a super rich, uh, beautiful yes. model, <laughs> white woman as the, uh, the hero yeah, <laughs> against social yeah. injustice. And drinking this sugary drink is going to yeah. help. Yeah. You know, so it's just all off. Yeah. It? So, so I think organizations are sensing that partly how we can be a light figure these days is by is by is by presenting as people who are assisting in these these political goals that have become very important to people especially young people um and some people are getting it right some people are getting it wrong there's a real science to it though isn't there yeah more we've spoken i've realized how how there is a, a science to it when you understand the the roles and also the audience the roles of the characters in your content or your piece and also where the it's really about where the audience sees themselves yeah you say, yeah and how they feel represented you are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. Your 2021 book, The Status Game. 
this is the book that when I was reading through all of my notes, I have by far the most amount of notes on. Oh, great. <laughs> because I, maybe it's just, you know, the way I'm compelled or whatever, but it was really, really fascinating and very, felt very relevant. Status as a topic. Mm. Why, why does status matter? And what is status for people that don't understand the word? Okay, so, so, so it matters massively. And, and, I, and the reason I wanted to write that book is because people just don't really talk about it very much. Even though our lives are full of status pursuit, people just don't talk about it very much. Status or status? Which well, it? Americans say status, Brits okay. tend to say status, but I guess it's status. both. Yeah, it's, it's both. Okay. Um, uh, so so, so I, I think one of, the, one, of the, one, of the, one of the kind of reasons people kind of tend to not like this subject is that when I when I sort of make the argument that we're all motivated by status pursuit, they kind of they think I'm saying we all want to be rich, we all want to be famous, and that's not what I'm saying at all. What what I'm saying is that we all want to feel of value. So we evolved as the, as these you know tribal animals, and to be successful in the tribe means two things. You've got to be good at connecting with other people, so so being accepted, and and, and fomenting a sense of belongingness with other people. So that's belongingness, that's connection, that's not status, that's something else. Um, but once we're in a group, in a tribe, we want to rise within it. We want to feel like we are of value to other people. And so back in the days when our brains were evolving in the, in, in, you know, when we were living in the, in the tribes, um, uh, the more status that you earned, uh, the more and better food you'd get, the safer your sleeping sites, the safer your children would be, the greater your access to your choice of mates. So, I mean, I mean, as we all know, survival and reproduction are the basic, most fundamental um, drives we have as living things. And status, when you rise in status, your chances of survival and reproduction just go up and up and up and up. So when you're in the tribes, the more, you know, people would try and get status in the tribes. Um, and, and the more, more status you got, the better everything else became. And so that was true 10,000 years ago. It's true today. That is still true today. The more status that you earn, the better everything else gets. So it's this huge, um, huge component of human behavior, but it's subconscious. So we don't like to think about it sometimes. We like to deny it, even though we all love to feel of value and we are all very, very sensitive to any indication that, we, that somebody considers us to be of lesser value. You know, you said at the start of that, that when you introduce this topic, people will have kind of an allergic reaction mm. because they think they think you mean, and it goes back to what we were saying about your audience receiving that message <laughs> yeah. in a bad way because of where it frames them. It frames yeah. them as being kind of narcissistic yeah. and, and selfish and, you know, yeah. and those are no, nobody wants to admit that they, they mm. are selfish or mm. they are, you know, they're concerned with status. They don't want to admit it. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yes. but, but no one wants to say it. I'll say it. It's just the way that we are. Um, um, but, and then you, you went on to say that, you know, people don't like to admit they want to be famous, but I, I tend to believe that a lot of people do want to be famous. And in that book, you talk about children in particular, when they're asked what they want to be when they're older, it's quite pretty alarming, right? Yeah. I mean, that, and that's, I mean, that's, that's again, an indicator of the rise in individualism, uh, that that's the, the, the more and more kids in the West since the seventies have been saying, we want to be rich, we want to be famous, but there are all kinds of status games that we can play. And I think, I think the, I, I think the, the, one of the important things to understand about status games is, is, is that the brain is so obsessed with status, it, it assigns kind of status points to, it can, to anything. So for, so, so for some people, for lots of people, the accrual of money 
That's their status gain. That's how they're measuring their status, how much money I've got. Uh, but for other people, for it, it can be um, how simply I live. You know, I, I, I know someone who um, he's a lovely guy, but he considers himself to be sort of not materialistic and he's very much in the wellness space. And he um, tell, t- you know, was telling me um, last year that he's, you know, he takes his kids to their private school. But at the school gates, you know, he's got this beaten up old car that he's had since he was a student and he's got masking tape around the, 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 the wing mirror. And he was sort of talking, oh, you know, all the other parents have got these big Mercedes and Audis and BMWs, but I've just got this thing. And, and, and I think he, he was trying to express the fact that he just didn't care. He just didn't care about his, his status. But for me, he, he did care. That car was every bit as much of a status symbol for him as the, you know, the brand new Mercedes um, four-wheel drives were for the other parents. It's just that he was playing a different status game. In his game, having a crap car is is a high status thing. The same as the aristocracy in Britain. So, you know, if you're, if you're a member of the British aristocracy, you'll look down your nose at people who have a brand new Japanese Lexus or whatever. They drive up beating up Land Rovers. And so, 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 so it all depends what game you're playing. Different, different games... Um, use different things to symbolise status, and and and, and so so, that, so that's how that game works. Lots of people play the fame game. Lots of people play the money game, um, but but other people don't. You know, if you if you were if you were hanging around with Gandhi in India, you wouldn't be playing the the money game. You you you, 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 you would have got more status for living. The more simpler your life became, the more status in that group you would earn. It's so true. I've played all those games in my life. I'm still playing many of them. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not here to lie. So that's <laughs> that's just what it is. Mm. Um, and I, I think really interestingly on that as well is um, one of the status games I was playing when I was a little bit, well, I say insecure, but clearly I'm still insecure if, if I'm still playing status games, status games now, um, was how much designer stuff can I buy and uh, champagne can I buy in nightclubs? I played that game between 18 <laughs> and 24. Yeah. And then when I actually got money, when I actually was successful... I actually saw Louis Vuitton as a l- lower status thing. So I just started wearing all black and got rid of all of my designer stuff yes. because yeah. I now think that- You're in a different game. Yeah, it's yeah. a different game that yeah. I'm playing now. Yeah. And so I don't, now I have an allergic reaction to anything designer because to me, yeah, it's weird. I think it's low status. I think in my head- No, it's, it's like, true. And, you know and in I mean? the book, I write about this, this hilarious study where they figured out- because in, in the in the luxury goods game, the bigger the logo, the lower the status. Yes. And they figured out that, that, that I forget the exact measurements, but a certain amount of um, logo space, um, you know, like half an inch um, smaller meant, you know, $500 more on the, on the price. And the most expensive designer stuff has a logo on the inside. There's no logo on the outside. And so, so and, and what that kind of speaks to is that, again, the whole world isn't one status game. There are kind of almost infinite status games, and pe- people are, we're not particularly we're not that interested in what people outside our games think of, think of us. It's much more about what people who are playing the games with us think of us. And so, you know, in, in my wife is the former editor of Elle magazine, so so you know, so, so I, you know that fashion luxury world. Um, you, you know, p- p- people signal to each other. I will see a handbag, and it will just be invisible to me what that handbag means, what the meaning of that handbag is. <laughs> but the person, the owner of that handbag, won't get the first fuck what I think about their handbag. They're interested in what's, what, what, you know, that woman over there who knows about that handbag knows. And they'll know by the quality of the stitching, by a tiny little detail on the corner of that bag, that that is a really good bag. And that's what matters because that's, 
that's the game. They're playing a game with that person. They're not playing the game with me, so they don't care what I think. It's so true. You know, I have this very unproven um, thought that just came to mind when you are saying about the size of the logo, mm. that when you're f- at the very... When it comes to luxury goods, at the very bottom of the status uh, uh, ladder, you want the biggest fucking logo possible. Yes. <laughs> you, and you want it all, you want yeah, it all yeah. over the garment. Yeah. And if you think about certain, like, you know, yeah. people, you know, where they are in that, in that status thing, they will have, the, they will wear a tracksuit <laughs> yeah. of that logo. And then as you rise financially or in status, you, the, the logo, as you say, gets smaller and then it disappears. Mm. So at the, if you look at billionaires, they're not wearing... Jeff Bezos is not wearing no. a, a Louis Vuitton tracksuit <laughs> or a Burberry tracksuit. Basics, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, it's all plain. Yeah, with the yeah, billionaires, yeah, yeah. it's all very plain. Yeah. Um, they they have the yacht. They're yeah. playing that game. Yeah, yeah, they how, do. How many feet is the yacht? But yeah, super interesting. Makes me wonder: do do we actually really care about these things? Do we actually really? Um, we I I spend. We spend our lives telling ourselves that we want that Birkin bag. Mm. We, we we really genuinely love the Lamborghini, but do we do we actually like the Lamborghini, or we do, do we just just like what it's signalling about us? Well, I don't want to over I don't want to over um, kind of almost overpromise the story. Like like I think there's a danger where you can say, well, a Lamborghini is 100% status, there's nothing else. I, I think that's that, that's not quite fair on Lamborghini. They're amazing machines. And I've never driven a Lamborghini, but I'm sure it's a fantastic experience. You know, I, I, you know I've driven sports cars a, a couple of times and it's been amazing. So, so it's not just status. Like it is... It's incredible to have a Leica camera. They take amazing photographs. So, so, so you are you are getting something extra for your money, but it's but 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 mostly, I think what you're getting is is status. That, that, that that's really mostly what you're getting, and it's worth it. I mean, I, I think I, I I don't want to fall into that trap of being condescending to status. It is a fundamental human need that we feel of value, and you know, if we're playing a high level status game with lots of Lamborghini owners, it's really really hard to feel a value in that group. So you've got to work really hard. Um, so that's why a brand new Lamborghini for somebody playing that game will feel as good as a, you know, as a dirt bike to somebody playing, you know, a game over there. Like one might cost multiples more than the other, but it will feel just as good because they're worried about, they're only really concerned about what the other people in their, their their game are thinking. So, so, so yeah, we, we, we do care. And, and it's, it's a good thing because it's that, you know, the book does talk a lot about the negatives of, status pursuit but it also talks a lot about the positives of status pursuit i mean civilization technology that that's what you get um when people want to pursue status when, when somebody wants to become the best technologist the best vaccine designer the best um um you know the best charity we want to save the most lives that's humans at their best and that's also status pursuit but it's good it's positive what is the toxic downside of being addicted to status though and 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 my sub question to that is there is insecurity and sort of a lack of self-worth a predictor of being addicted to status games being human is a predictor of being addicted to status games we're all addicted to status games and do you not think people that were bullied and that didn't that were that were low that were low status in childhood in some context yeah are those that then seek status most as adults um, maybe, but I, I, again, I, again, I, I do think a personality comes a lot into play. Um, uh, li- like anything, some people are more interested in the status than other people. Mm. Like Elon Musk is obviously incredibly interested in his own relative status, and that's a big driver for him. 
um, uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, Beyonce, you know, th- these people um, uh, are in, are, are very highly attuned to the status game. And that's what pushes them, pushes them, pushes them to work harder than I will ever work. Um, um, so, 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 so I don't, I don't necessarily think it's about um, low self-worth. It might, it, it's probably to do with um, genetic things like extroversion, uh, agreeableness, which is a personality um, uh, component. If you're low in agreeableness, you're competitive. It's that kind of type A personality. So, 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 so there's definitely a genetic component to it uh definitely but, but there's also you know cl- class comes into it uh people uh, on the lower socioeconomic groups have much less access to status games so, so so you know i think that's why you know if you're a working if you if you if you're a poor guy raised in a housing estate in stockwell and you're only the only available status games to you are tesco's bakery and this gang over here I know what I'm joining, you know, it's changed the way that I see some of those issues that, that, you know, we are, we are programmed to, we are programmed to crave connection and status and we will find connection and status wherever we can. And so I, and I, so I, you know, I think that explains, you know, when people are joining gangs, it's not because they're naughty. It's not because they're bad people. It's because they're just doing what they're designed to do, where they're in an environment where there aren't many status games to play. There's just not a lot of options. It's interesting because when I, I think think of some of my friends that I that I believe in my own, you know, ill-informed observation are addicted to status. They, the ones that are really addicted to status, the ones that are really pursuing it, are actually pursuing it at the cost of connection. Mm. And and what mm. I mean by that is my my richest, most successful friend that I have that lives in a massive mansion in the middle of nowhere because that's the place that he can buy the biggest house and has all the sports cars. Um, is is also the loneliest. Yeah, that's that's a really good observation. I mean, status and con- and connection they're separate things. So we, so we, we we crave by you know nature both of them. You know, um, we, we people are tend to be happier when they're more connected. But status is a separate thing, and and I think that's right. I think that's absolutely correct. Some people's their people's dials are set. I I consider myself somebody who is relatively high in need for status, which is why I ended up writing books for a living. Uh, but I'm relatively low in need for the connection. I don't really have much of a social life. I don't really want one. You know, I'm not bothered particularly. Um, so so you know, everybody's dials are set in different ways. Some people have relatively low need for status, and they're relatively high need for connection and they're surrounded by friends and they're probably happier than I am. I'm sure they're happier than I am. Is there instances where we can be too consumed with status and that can cause us to have um, adverse personal consequences? Um, Yeah, I suppose. Okay, so in the book, I write that there are kind of three general types of status games that we can play. The first game is the dominance game. And so the dominance game we share with animals. We've been playing dominance games for millions of years and they are what they sound like they are. They're about aggression, but also the threat of aggression, um, bullying, you know, that kind of thing. It, it, whenever we force somebody else to attend to us in status, that's dominance. Um, there's success games, which is, I think, the best of human nature, um, competence. So when, when, you're, when you're thinking about how do we become a valued member of our tribe, um, back in the days when our brains were evolving, we could be the best honey finder, the best storyteller, the best hunter, best finder of tubers. So that's how you were a value to your tribe, competence or being good at something. But there's also virtue. Um, um, you know, we, we, we can play virtue games. And so in the tribe, that means that you know the rules 
of the tribe. You enforce the rules of the tribe. You know the rituals. You believe in the spiritual stories. Um, so virtue isn't just about being selfless and kind and loving to the, your, your tribal members. It's also about being an enforcer. And I think, you know, there's no such thing as a pure game. That's the other thing to kind of point out. Like, a, like, like you, can, you can see... Um, a boxing match is a dominance game. It's pretty clearly a dominance game, but it's also got a virtue element to it. There's some rules in boxing. You can't go and just go and kick them in the groin. You know, like there has to be some virtue in there too. So you call that a dominance virtue game. And I think that I think the worst games, I, th I think the, the games that are most destructive are what I call virtue dominance games. So a virtue dominance game is one in which I, I, I'm raising status by enforcing rule, but by following rules and knowing the, mor the moral rules, the dominance um, uh, component is I'm going to force you to do it. So, so, so you, you know, that's what you see on social media a lot. Those you know, cancel culture mobs, people attacking each other for believing the wrong things. That's a virtue dominance game. Um, at their very worst, a virtue dominance game, you know, in the book I write about the rise of the Nazis, I write about the, fin the final chapter, which kind of brings the whole thing together, is uh, the story of the rise of the communist in the Soviet Union uh, from the perspective of status. And, and you know, that, that's also a virtue dominance game. They're not interested in competence, in, 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 in success. They're interested in, you're going to believe this, and if you don't, we're going to punish you. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on at the moment. There's a lot of that going on at the moment. And, yes. I, and I think a lot of it is because, um, you know, try, trying to be kind of open-hearted about it, I wrote about this in Selfie and, and I wrote in, in, in the status game is that since the global financial crisis, life has got harder, especially for young people. Success, get, you know, like it's hard to get on the property ladder. Uh, people are leaving university with student debt. There's massive underemployment for graduates. We've got what they call elite overproduction. We're producing too many smart, educated people for the roles to fit in. It's, it's it, 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 you know, and we're now entering a new recession, apparently. So, so, so Life is much harder for millennials and Gen Zs than it was for boomers and Gen Xs. So success games are harder to play. So what you, I think, what you're seeing is online. People people get status wherever they can, so they they start playing virtue games instead. One of the alarming things you talk about in this book is that um, status. Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. English way. I need to because I've you're right. not American, <laughs> and, and that will harm my status. People <laughs> exactly. attack me in the comments section. <laughs> um, this idea that status games actually have an impact on our health and mortality—that mm. we will die younger if we have lower status. What evidence have you have you got have you got or found to support this idea? Well, there's lots of evidence. Um, there's a big, a lot of it comes from this guy called Dr. Michael Marmot, who is just did this incredible set of work, which he calls the Whitehall Studies. So obviously Whitehall is the bureaucracy that kind of runs, that, that kind of takes the, you know, the, the civil service that kind of works with the government. So it's an enormous organisation, highly stratified. And so Marmot um, uh, looked at um, kind of health outcomes for people on different levels of that kind of hierarchy, that status game. And found that the the, the 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 lower you went down that status game, the worst health outcomes became. So the obvious thing is, oh, that's just because if you're being paid less, you maybe can't afford the personal trainer. You, you know, you're eating worse. But it wasn't that that wasn't the case at all. Literally, one rung down below the very top, so still a very very wealthy, successful, high status people had worse health outcomes than the person at the very top. Um, so 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 it really did seem like. Um, the brain is highly attuned to where we sit in a pecking order. And the, the, lower, the lower we are down in that pecking order, the more unhealthy we became. Another set of scientists looked at this in, the, in a laboratory 
So they took a bunch of monkeys um, uh, uh, who um, obviously like us, very hierarchical, they play status games. And um, they deliberately fed, it's a terrible experiment. It's very, it's pretty awful. But they deliberately fed them a terrible diet of like fast food, like chocolate and crisps. So they, so, so they ended up having a high level of atherosclerotic plaque, which is, you know, so they, they, they were getting clogged up basically and, and vulnerable to heart problems and so on. And they found that it was the same, that the lower you went down the monkey pecking order, the more likely the monkeys were to die of these heart-related diseases because of their bad diets and the ones at the top. And then importantly, they um, conspired to change the hierarchy of the group. I don't know how they did it, but they changed them. Maybe they took out the top monkey, but they changed the hierarchy of the group. And um, they found that the health outcomes changed in lockstep with the change in hierarchy. So if a monkey went up, they became less likely to die. And so, so then you might ask, well, this is crazy. Like, why is this? And so, so, so the closest answer that scientists have come, there's a whole field called social genomics. It's a new field. And social genomics is all about how does our social world affect the function of our genes? So, you know, we're social animals. We're, our brains are constantly monitoring how we're doing in the world. What are our levels of connection? What are our levels of status? We have this status detection system that's constantly monitoring our level of status. And so, so, so the idea is uh, that uh, when the brain um, registers that we, we, we are you know, dropping in status or we're not too high in status, uh, it prepares our cells. It changes the way our, our, our genes work and, our, and the actions of our cells change in such a way um, that it kind of prepares us for kind of trouble. Um, so inflammation goes up. Um, antiviral response goes down um, and so, so the body changes in such a way that we become more ill there's a really um <laughs> a narrative in there which some might deduce from hearing all of that which is that your level of success relates to your health and this i'm going to say it in a really gruesome way which is the more successful you are um the longer you, you'll live Obviously, there's loads of factors yes. at play. Yeah. You know, if you're eating burgers and smoking yes, and exactly. doing class yeah. A drugs, you're, yeah. that's going to probably be a, a stronger sort of determinant in your outcomes. Mm. But but generally speaking, if two people are eating the exact same thing, if they're living the exact same lifestyle in terms of what they're consuming and the way that they're living, and the only variable is their level of success in a yeah. status game, yeah, then they will be... They're less likely to die if they're higher up. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Quite, but, but quite alarming, isn't as it? you said. There's so many confounds. I mean, yeah. life is much more complicated than that. There's, there's always, other, you know, it is true that people, have, you know, smoke and don't smoke and and so on. But 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 you know, what Marmot finds is that is that if you take two smokers, the one higher up is less, is less likely to die of a smoking related disease than the than the one lower down in the status in the status game ladder yeah. or whatever. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and um, one of the other things that I, I wrote down reading that book was workers at the bottom of the office hierarchy have at ages forty to sixty four four times the risk of death of their, I guess, administrators means managers. Yeah. At the top of the hierarchy. Yeah. That's from the Whitehall studies. Yeah, that's part of what Dr. That's Michael mental. Said. Yeah, it's crazy. So so they're really significant. It's not marginal. They're, you know, when you, when you uh, it, it'll be marginal from one layer to the next. But when you actually look at the whole game, it's very significant. The, the differences, the health outcomes from the top and bottom. It's absolutely mental. I've never really considered that idea before that s status is playing such a significant role in my mm. biological sit situation. Mm. Um, the same is true for connection. For, so when we're lonely, the same thing happens. The lonelier we are, when we lack status, 
the same thing. We, you know, we we have that our uh, inflammation goes up, antiviral response goes down, which is bad for us in the long term. And it's the same with uh, the social genomics people say it's the same with loneliness, which is why loneliness is bad for our health too. The other thing that I found particularly interesting was that um, when we lose our status, the consequences of that can be pretty morbid. Yeah, and that suicide is often the result of people losing status and the speed in which they lose their status. Yeah. Yeah, so so this is why I never believe the Jeffrey Epstein conspiracy theory is. I think he did kill himself because he's just had this huge um, drop in status. It just makes him incredibly vulnerable to suicidal thought and ideation. So, so yeah, so it's not just drops in status. It's especially sudden drops in status makes us very vulnerable. Um, uh, and also I found it was, it was interesting, the research says it's it's also being left behind. So if we if we stay still... And everybody else's, everybody around us accelerates. That 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 also makes us vulnerable to uh, potentially, you know, anxiety, depression, and potentially suicidal ideation. That in particular is quite a, um, an alarming thought. That if you're in a group of five friends, mm. best friends, and four of the best friends do really, really well professionally in, in their careers, whatever, just because of the context in which you you're existing you might become depressed because yeah. your four friends did well. Mm. And this, this, in some respects, might explain jealousy. Of course it does, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, I mean you know, we, 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 we've evolved to um, want to feel of value, but unfortunately, being of value is kind of relative. Like, if everybody is equally valued, then nobody's valued. Do, do you know what I mean? We're all mm -hmm. on the same level. So you, it's, that, I, I think that's when it can become quite damaging. Uh, and that's where it can, life can become quite exhausting, especially in this kind of highly um, competitive neoliberal world that we live in, where everybody's pushing, pushing, pushing to succeed, pushing, pushing to succeed. It, you know, it's true, you know, I hate, you know, we hate it when our friends become successful. Parts of us are always going to because it kind of devalues what, you know, what we have. Uh, you know, it's just um, an unfortunate byproduct of the of the status game you talk about how we look up to people who are like us yeah but we also seem to be more jealous of people that are like us yeah because they because they are the, the clearest evidence of our own inadequacy yeah it's that, that was a really sort of um um kind of knotty par paradox for me to get my head around when i was writing the book uh, and the closest solution I could come to it was so when you look at um, how, how, the fun how, how human social groups work, um, there's, there's a really amazing researcher in America called Joseph Henrich who studies this stuff and has written about a couple of books about this, and 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 he talks about how how we learn and so so in those again those groups in which we evolve, which we sort of look to to figure out why we are like we are. What you'll find is that is is that is that when you were growing up, you know, young people look they identify high status people from which to learn, and those high status people um, are going to be like them in some way. They're probably going to be the same gender, and they're going to have the same kind of interests and you know that kind of thing. And and so that, so, so this mechanism switches on, which is copy, flatter, conform. So you start copying their behaviour because the brain goes, well, this person's high status. I want to become high status. Um, so, so if I want to become high status, of course, I've got, oh, I've got to do everything that they're doing. So if I do everything that they're doing, oh, you know, it'll work. So it switches on. So, and then we've got the flatter process, which is 
I, I need access to this person. I want to be around this person to be able to learn everything that they're doing. And you do that with, you know, flattery is a good way of doing that. It's like, um, you know, oh, you're amazing. I love this. What a great book. What a great podcast. You're amazing businesses. And then, you know, so, 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 so we'll let people in who treat us that way and conform. You, you do what you do, what you do, what you're told you, you behave. And, and so, and so, you know, you can, you can, you can think about that when you think about celebrities, you know, like I, I, I remember when I was, seven or eight years old, I was obsessed with this guy called, this guy, Nick Kershaw. And I remember seeing him on TVM and he was crossing his legs in a certain way with his ankle on his knee and his legs sticking out. And I just found myself sitting at school <laughs> in the same way as Nick Kershaw, you know, so, so, so like the, my copy, you know, my copy flatter conform mechanism is switched on. That's influential. So, so I, I, I think that's how, I, I think that's how kind of fame works. I, I think it's that we, we, we see people who feel like a piece of us, but a highly successful piece of us. Like that person's like me, but amazing. And so, so these very ancient evolved mechanisms switch on, even though we're probably never going to meet that person, they just switch on and we become, and, and so, you, you know, you'll notice that, um, people read the same books as their idols. They dress the same way as their idols. They might even you know, I find, I mean, I'm embarrassed about it, but I think it's probably very common. When, I, when I've watched a stand-up c- comedy special and I've loved it, I'll find myself talking like that comic <laughs> the next day, like using their inflections a bit. Um, it's just kind of weird, you know, uh, or laughing like them, you know. So, so generally speaking, we're quite envious creatures. We don't like high-status people. Um, but there's a very narrow class of people that we identify with. And those are the people that feel like, super successful versions of us like we, we we relate to them we identify with them and and that's when that very evolved ancient mechanism switch on which i call in the book copy flatter conform yeah it's so interesting much of what you've described as well as explains influence marketing and why it's so effective why we why you know if so, if you look up to someone they can sell you anything absolutely right? and yeah. that's, that's what the yeah. whole industry is based on um the other the other point that you talk about in the book around the role that status is playing which really alarmed me and, and made me ponder quite a lot was about how st- our pursuit for status is more important than our pursuit for money when we've kind of addressed the money topic and how, you know, many employees would, would rather accept a higher status job than a pay rise. Yeah, different job title. Yeah. That's, that's pretty alarming. Yeah, it's, it's, it, well, it, it is, it, but it's not that surprising when you think about the evolution of the brain. We haven't evolved to crave money because money hasn't been around long enough. We've evolved to crave status and money is just one way that we can measure status. But there are loads of other ways we can measure status. So, so, so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be money based, you know. So, and as you said, there, there was a, quite a major study. I think it was 15,000 people in the UK that they surveyed and found that most would accept a, diff, a, a high status job title over a modest pay rise. Yeah. So instead of, you know, I've got Jack sat over there. He's the producer, <laughs> director of this podcast. So... Jack, what's your job title right now? Um, what do I say? Director slash producer? Okay, so, so if I change Jack's job title to CEO of the podcast <laughs> yeah. versus giving him £1,000 pay rise, he'd probably take the CEO of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just but, but it's also it's smart thinking because, because, you know, when we're judging other people's status, it isn't just how much money they have. In fact, we never the know. money's often invisible. The, yeah. the, the the title says a lot. So if you were to, you know, make Jack's, you know, th- he's my 
podcast CEO, mm. he's more likely than to go on and get a better job somewhere else, higher status, more money because of that bump in status. So it's actually, the instinct is correct. It's a smarter move to take the title than the, than the grand. So I could reduce his salary by half. By doing- <laughs> no, I think well, yeah, but that's the thing. I, I think we're so sensitive to um, reductions in status that, is, I know, that will never fly. That's interesting. <laughs> Um, you talk about the cues as well within status games that we, we kind of look for. What are those four cues? Yeah, this is, this is again, Joseph Henrich's work where he looks at, um, um, the, the, you know, how do we identify the people that we want to copy, flatter, conform? Um, so there, there, there are various cues. Um, one of them is um, uh, with, they call them success cues. So, so in um, the hunter-gatherer tribe, it might be a hunter has a big necklace of teeth, one tooth from oh. every creature that he's killed um you know so so, so, so so that's why we have jewelry these days because it's, it's a success cue and it's amazing when you read about the detail because the you know the brain is it's, some neuroscientists call it has a status detection system so we are constantly all of the time um, monitoring our environment for, for, for status cues and you know playing that game and and so so we're constantly monitoring other people's body language um we, we can measure someone's relative status versus, uh, you know, submissive versus dominant in 43 milliseconds. That's how quick when we see somebody, we, we measure how dominant or submissive they are in, in terms of status. So, so that's how quick it is. So, 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 so we're looking at things like um, successful interruptions in conversation. The more successful interruptions you make, the higher status you are. Like we've all been in situations, maybe you're not for a while, where you're trying to get a word in edgewise and, and everyone's just, <laughs> everyone's just like, I'm maybe this- in a family situation and you just think, oh, fuck it. You know, I have just- Piers Morgan on the podcast so I can get a fucking word in edgewise <laughs> with him. But, yeah. but, that's, but that's, that's actually a, a perfectly valid point. He yeah. sees himself as higher status than you. Yeah. And, so he, and, so, and, and so both of your games subconsciously were playing a status game. And, and so, so, so we are... Um, we, we, so, so that's another way. We, we're also measuring another cue is how other people are, are attending to that person. So if we notice lots of people are attending to a person, we will automatically assume they're worth attending to. And so what's interesting, um, Joseph Henry writes, is, is, that, is that these effects were designed to work in small groups of people because that's how we, we evolved in very small tribes. They weren't evolved to um, operate in in a global environment of, of modern media and the internet. So you get these feedback loops where lots of people are looking at one person. So more and more people start looking at that person and then they get reported in the press and then more people start looking at them and they call it the Paris Hilton effect. Cause I think when they figured out what was going on, Paris Hilton was the big, why is she famous person? But you might as well just call it the Kardashian effect or whoever the latest person is that, every, that, that, that happens to be really famous and then no one can quite work out why it's because it's a feedback loop. Once you, lots of people start looking at that one person Everyone just piles in and because their brains are assuming they must be high status, they must be worth attending to if everyone's attending to them. People attend to them. And then, you know, you've also talked about how their, their health outcomes would be better potentially as well. So should success cues go up. Their success yeah. cues go yeah. up. You yeah. know, it sounds like a wonderful life to live. <laughs> so should we all start pursuing status? Well, no, we, uh, well, we, again, I'd say we, all, we, all, we already are, but, but I think, you know, another way that all this research has made me understand the world a lot better is that when we look at very high status people, really rich, wealthy, successful people, half our brain is just jealous. It goes, oh, lucky them. And we imagine they have this brilliant life and they're so happy and everything's wonderful. But with the other half of our brains, we know that's not true because when you meet 
very rich and successful people, they're often not happy. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. There's suicide, there's alcoholism, there's workaholism. You know, they're like, they're not happy. The marriages don't last. So, so it, it, it's made sense of that to me. It's, it, it, and that's, and it's, and it's actually quite a nice understanding that, it, that, that, that there isn't this, this hierarchy of happiness where the, the richer you are, the happier you are, because we're all playing individual status games. So, you know, th those people playing high level status games, the millionaires, the billionaires, the Elon Musks, they're competing with the people immediately around them. They're competing, like Elon Musk is competing with Jeff Bezos and Tim mean. Cook. So, so they're yeah. no happier yeah. than the people at school who are competing to be the best. Well, I say no happier. That's the general. I mean, I don't know. But, 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 but you know, the higher you go, the harder that game becomes. So, 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 you know, that's taken away a lot of that. Oh, I wish I was this. I wish I was that. Yes, I'd love a yacht, you know, <laughs> but still, you know, I'm not naive anymore to how, how difficult and punishing that life can be at the very top because you're not competing with me anymore or the people down there or you know or or, or even above me you're competing with people they're competing with the people who, who they're playing against and they're all highly successful highly motivated um uh, incredible individuals it, it's it's become really interesting this whole um space race yeah richard branson jeff bezos elon musk exactly you go really you all really care about <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, but the other thing to say about that is, and this is again how I've changed. I mean, I'm a lefty. I've always been a lefty. But this book has really opened my mind to the idea that actually we do benefit from these people, not just in the obvious ways. That they they hire a lot of people. They give you know people get meaning and purpose from their jobs. They people get to live a life and pay their mortgage from their jobs. Uh, they pay taxes that keeps the you know that keeps the countries running. So they're 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 doing all that, uh, but also with the space race, they're competing because they're playing a status game. That's obvious, but but science and technology benefits from that too. I mean, there, there will, I mean, I don't I, you know there there will no doubt be a number of innovations that 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 are hugely useful to humanity that come as a result of this um, you know th this space race or races like it amongst these highly motivated top level players chapter 29 of this book you you kind of you talk about how we can advance in the status game status game fucked it again and the seven rules of the status game mm. um how how do we advance in the status game and what do you mean by advance do you mean win no because you can't win i mean that's the thing i think the brain's the brain has this story that we live by where where, where and, and stories contain happy endings and the happy ending is if i achieve this then i'm going to be happy and again we, we it's weird because we know that's not true when we've lived a bit of life because you know but, but we still kind of believe it if i get this if this next book sells a hundred thousand then i'll be happy and it's like i know that's not true but um, so, 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 so you, you don't ever win it. That's an illusion. That's the storytelling brain, you know, just giving you a bit of a lie to keep you motivated. I, I, I think there, there, there are various ways that you can succeed in the status game. Um, you know, some kind of are quite practical. I think, I think one of the most practical is that it's this amazing revelation that status is more valuable than money to most people. Um, and it's free. Like we have status to give. And um, you can save money, as I've just shown. You can, you can get, you can get call, call him a CEO and you can go yeah. pay him half. It's unbelievable. I, I wish I'd known this earlier. But we can, but, but we, you know, but, but, but we, so we have loads of opportunities in our lives to, um, to give status to, to, to our employees, to the people around us. And we often don't. Uh, and, you know, uh, and so, so I think that, and, and that feeds back in a kind of real politic y, 
kind of slightly cynical way is if we are generous with status, people are going to want to be around us and they're going to want to work with us and, they're gonna, and, and, and some of that status will wash back. So, so, so I think, you know, don't treat status as if it's a limited resource. In the business context, I think there's a really, um, it's not in that final section, but one of the other sort of light bulb moments for me in the business context was this difference between um, uh, competition and rivalry. So when you first think about competition and rivalry in business, you think that's the same thing, uh, but it's not. So competition is bad um, and, uh, and rivalry is good. So, uh, so, so when I'm talking about competition, I'm talking about a, a corporate structure like Enron. So that's the example I used in the book. So Enron famously had their rank and yank system where the top, I think it was 15% got promoted. I think they were judged, judged them at least twice a year. Everybody in the company got judged. Um, the top 15% got promoted, the bottom got fired and the middle were just fucking terrified. So that's competition. <laughs> so, so competition is, is a sense of all against all. You, you, you go into work and it's a fucking war and, and, and you've got to grab and, you know, and, and I think that that's when you end up with extremely toxic and ultimately potentially corrupt corporate cultures because status is very hard to come by. Um, uh, and, um, so that's what you want to avoid. And, and you know, it's thought that like a, a very moderate amount of competition is quite good to motivate people, but it very quickly goes wrong. Um, the alternative to that is rivalry. Now, rivalry is, is healthy and a massive motivator. And rather than being all against all, rivalry is one against one. So that's one individual against one individual or one group one team against another team or one organization against another organization. And rivalry is characterized by um, ha having this status competition that's characterized by lots of near misses and skirmishes. So you can think about Apple and Microsoft had, had a period where, where, where there were great rivals and, and, and that rivalry kind of pushed them on. And in the book, I tell the story um, of the true origin story of the iPhone, which is quite amazing. And, and it begins when Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs' his wife was friends with somebody from Microsoft and she would have regular parties, barbecues. And so this Microsoft executive, this unnamed Microsoft executive would, would come to the barbecue and um, be bragging to Steve Jobs. And, and one day he was bragging to Steve Jobs saying, um, we've solved computing. You know, it's over for you guys. We've figured it out. We've got these tablets with these styluses. They're going to change everything. And then um, the next day, the Monday, Steve Jobs comes into work furious because his rival Microsoft is, is dragging their faces in and saying, we've solved computing. And he says, let's show, and he says, let's show these fucking pricks how it's really done. It's not done with stars. It's done with fingers. That's how it's done. And that became the iPad, which, well, that became the iPhone. Well, first it was the iPad, but they released the iPhone and then it reemerged as the iPad. And as um, Scott Forstall, who was the guy that told that story, said, it was very bad for Microsoft <laughs> that Steve Jobs ever met that guy. But that's the true origin story of the iPhone, this device that's changed the world, is status and rivalry. This guy from Microsoft rubbing Steve Jobs' face in it at a barbecue. So, so that's healthy. That's good. Well, not good for Microsoft, but that's, that, that's what you want to be um, in a corporate sense, in an organizational sense. You want to be, um, you want to be encouraging rivalry and not competition. Interesting. I've always tried to make sense of my um, my love of rivalry, <laughs> and I've always I've always wondered if it was a toxic uh, flaw in me, or because it seems to be such an unbelievable motivator. I'm so I'm so I've always said competitive, but now I'm hesitant to say that word. But I'm mm. I'm always looking for a rival. Yeah. Even you know I have ten friends. We're in a fitness competition, and um, every month we hand out oh, these fake awards. <laughs> There's gold, silver, and bronze. Yeah. And 
four days out, I won gold last month. And then four days out from this month, my friend, good friend of mine, he's managing director of one of my companies, Oliver Yonchev, he starts talking shit to me. And I was so happy he did because I realized that in those last four days of the month, I was going to do, I was going to work out three hours, four hours a day to beat him. And it was, <laughs> and it's almost, I reflected on what I saw in Michael Jordan's documentary mm. where Michael Jordan would, it would seem look for rivalries. He would, so much so that he would make them up. And when they went and asked the other person if it had happened, they'd go, no, that didn't happen. But Michael Jordan had created a rivalry yeah, in his head to motivate himself. There's actually a clip on YouTube called It Became Personal With For Me, yeah. which is just a compilation of Michael Jordan repeatedly saying a story that <laughs> might, might not have or might have happened. And then saying it became, that's when it became personal with me. Yeah. And then it shows him slam dunking yeah. on that person or winning another title or whatever. This constant search for rivalry as a, as a motivator. That's fascinating. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And, and, and so that, that that description you say of, of somebody who's highly successful, constantly looking for rivalries, I think that's that, that that's correct. And, that, and I, I also think it's, it, it, it's a mistake to think, is it healthy or like, is it toxic? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? I think, I think, one of the things I try not to do in my books is to categorise what's good and what's bad. It just is. It, because, because in real life reality, it's usually a trade-off. Most things are trade-offs. And so, yes, in lots of senses, if you're playing your success games, um, it will be, it's a good thing. It's, it's a massive motivator. It was for Steve Jobs. It was for Michael Jordan. It sounds like it is for you. But that doesn't mean it's a 100% good thing. It, if you start losing, that's going to become... a, a a source of a lot of misery for you. So uh, I, I think we often make mistakes when we try to figure out whether something's good or bad, because I think the reality is that most things are trade-offs. You're completely right. It is a trade-off. And go, working out for three or four hours a day was not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. There was a significant cost to that with my my relationship, with my sleep, with, you know, with my productivity. So it is a trade-off. Um, and it, I guess it all depends what your objective, um, yeah. your objective ultimately is. You've, you've written... Um, a number of books now, many, many books, more books than I, I think I'll ever write in my life because um, I, I think I struggle to to, to write books. And, y you know, you find yourself in a place in life now where you're is it 47. 47. It was difficult to find find your age online. <laughs> I, had to, I, I had to go back to an article, I think, where you said you were 38 and do the math. Yeah. So I wasn't oh. sure if you're 47. Right. But um, what else are you, are you in search of in your life personally? What else, if, I, I've asked this question in maybe the last, I don't know, 10 episodes to my guests, but if, if, if your overall happiness was a, um, a recipe consisting of a set of ingredients, what are you looking for personally now in your life to fulfill that happiness recipe? That's a very good question. So I, I think that one of, the thing, one of the things I've done recently is I've, um, I've not started yet, but I've, I, I, I've, I, it's going to be happening this month is I'm going to start volunteering to a charity because I feel like, as we've already spoken about, one of the things I don't have is much connection. Like I've got a great marriage, but beyond outside the marriage, I, I, don't, I don't really see people that much. And I feel like because I don't have children, I don't actually do anything for anyone else. So it's going to be, I felt like I was becoming quite a selfish life. Everything was just about either my, well, apart from my dogs, who, I, who, I, who I'm obsessed with. I don't do anything for any, anything else. So, so I, I figure that's, that, that, that's a bit of a hole in my life. So that's why I'm, I'm going to start volunteering. Um, uh, um, if, if, if I've got to be interviewed by this charity, but assuming that goes well. So I think, I, I think that's a hole. And, and I, do, um, I, I do want to sort out the connection side of things. Like I've started having semi-regular meetups with some old school friends recently, which has just been an absolute joy to to see these people after you know so long. And 
I kind of, I, I kind of in my head had started telling this story that it was me that had uh, failed all my exams and was a total disaster. But it was amazing in Secret with all these, the, lots of, that's a lawyer and you know, there's all these successful people. We all failed our exams. It was just a really bad school, <laughs> but we all kind of succeeded um, regardless of that. Um, so, so, so that's been a, that, that, that's, that, that's been re- really fun. And I've had to kind of, um, yeah. So, so, so I think it's, I, I think it's moving the dial on connection that that's what I'm missing. We have to become more and more intentional about that connection, I think. I feel like men probably more so. Definitely, yeah. You know, and yeah. I, it's one of the things I've said to my five friends is I've said to them, you know, as we get older, when it's a birthday or when there's a, a wedding, make sure we all go because it's going to become increasingly, there's going to become increasingly more excuses as to as to why we shouldn't go or we can't go. We live further apart. We have families. We yeah. Have, and you really, I feel like as a man, you really have to fight for that connection as you age. It's like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I kind of really do believe that there are basic biological differences between the genders. On average, you have to say, generally speaking, mm. I mean, there's huge overlaps. Of course, we're more alike than we are different. But I think, on the average, I, I think you know, uh, men and women are, you know, that there are differences, and I, I do think that one of them is how we manifest socially. I think, y- y- you know, um, women are much better instinctively at, gr- at the group yeah you know yeah, yeah. whether that's um politically or um uh in a friendship context they just they just there just seems to be a men just seem to ha- have an instinct for going it alone yeah uh, and women seem to have an instinct for the group going it together g- going it together that's a lovely yeah. way of putting it yeah and um and and I and I think that you're right. I think men especially have to fight against that. I think that's why the suicide statistics are so much worse for for men. And and I and as the suicide expert I spoke to for selfie said, the solution isn't that men should be should, you know should be more like women um, because that's you can't change biology. But but uh, and I, but I think you're right. I think especially with the social connection thing, we have to push ourselves a bit harder and i always notice with the social stuff it it just seems to always happen where when you've got a social appointment coming up you think oh what did i say yes to that for but then that that that's like a hundred percent of the time you think oh i don't want to go but then when you go you go oh what a great time this is amazing i should do this more often and that's also 100 percent of the time it's so weird that um we 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 seem so uh, like men especially seem to be so bad at predicting how much we're going to enjoy a social occasion on that point with the suicide expert, it, you know, because much of the narrative I do hear regarding male suicide is that we we just need to talk more. And we're often, with that argument, often comes the, the, the sub point that if you look at how women are open and communicate with their social circle, with their, yeah. their you know, their, their friends, and they, they say, I'm feeling this, I'm going through this, blah, 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 blah. Men don't do that. So men need to do more of that. Yeah. What what did you learn from your conversations with that suicide expert? Well, his view and mine too um, is that I don't think I, I, I like sure talking helps, but 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 just saying to men you should be more like women is not that helpful. And actually, what we need to do is figure out what are men like, and um, and um, start trying to develop solutions that are specifically designed for men. I just think saying to men that you should learn to cry. I haven't cried for years. You know, it's like, it's, it's just not, um, it's not fair on men. It's not smart. There needs to be more work done in how can we actually help men in a male friendly way? You know, um, I, 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 I think that's, I think that's um, the way to go. What are men like? 
what are men like? Because well, you know, you said we have to figure out what men are like and yeah. then cater to, cater mm. to their unmet needs. Mm. I'm guessing in a in a in a way that kind of they can relate to. What is that? Well, again, like you've got to be very careful by but by, by, by not generalizing. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a huge variety in what men are like. You, yeah. you know, uh, uh, but 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 just to sort of underline the fact we're talking sort of generally speaking here. My sense is that. As, as I said before, women are much better in your great words at going together, whereas men t- tend to be more tend to be more by instinct go it alone, and and like everything, that's a trade off. Um, and and the negatives are um, uh, that we are you know we are less good at talking to other people and and sharing our kind of burdens. I think that I think I've got no scientific evidence to back this up, but my my impression is that 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 male identity um, often is focused more around success, personal success. So I think I think that's why you see lots of male suicide in middle age, because in in middle age, men start losing their bodies, they state their careers might grind to a halt their um, relationships with their children might start going wrong. They might get divorced and divorce, you know, you know, uh, yeah, it's not good. So, so, so I, 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 and I, and I think that that's where men um, particularly might get into trouble when, when men feel like I'm not a success, I'm not looking after my family, I'm failing in my job. It's that sense of being a failure. Um, I, yeah, I think, I think that's very, very hard for men. The suicidal ideation you describe in selfie was that linked to those reasons? Yeah, I, I think I think it's connection and status for me. I mean, the, the, the last time it happened really badly was when I moved back from I lived in Australia for four years and did quite well in Australia as a freelance journalist, but came back with nothing, no job because I was a freelancer. And so, yeah, I, 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 and then for a while, I just thought I was going to have to start doing day shifts, you know, uh, in magazines. Like it was bad. I just felt like I'd everything had gone wrong. Uh, and so that, I think that was very much connected to um, uh, status. I mean, I, I'm very bad because in the in the book, I recommend um, playing lots of games, playing multiple games. I mean, the, the, the science is pretty clear that... Um, the more status games people play in their life, the more sources of status they have, the more groups they belong to, the more stable their personality, the happier they tend to be. And as, as I said earlier on, I, I just do, I tend to do writing. <laughs> That's kind of what I do. That's partly the, you know, the selfish reasons for the volunteering. I, I, I want to have another source of status to protect myself against the inevitable getting older thing. When we realise that status games are like a comparative thing, so... Um you know, being a journalist, if there's a journalist that's the editor and is doing amazingly well, then and you're underneath, and then there's somebody at the very bottom of the the, the ladder, um, the person at the bottom of the ladder is going to be lower status just by measure of comparison. Mm. So does that mean that in some regard, in the society we live in that is based on status, there will always be someone at the bottom that is feeling that way? Because just by a measure of yeah. comparison, there's going to be someone else who is making them feel inadequate or like low status. Yeah, th- th- there's always going to be a hierarchy. You can't remove the hierarchy from the human. It's how we process reality. I mean, when you go into any sort of situation, if, you've met, if, you, if, you, if you introduce to five strangers, you know this, you know, yeah. like you'll, you have a conversation and within minutes, you'll start getting a sense of who's up there, who's down there. And it'll be body language. It'll be who's got the jobs, who's got the clothes. You know, your brain's just calculating. You can't stop it. It's going to happen. 
and 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 you can't stop it because everybody else is doing it to you too. You know, so you know that that's something that other people give to us as well. Is that is our sense of status? We sense it from other people. Um, so 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 the, so, the, so there will always be people, um, you know, at the bottom in inverted commas. But there are a few things to say. About, that sounds grim, but there are a few things to say about that. The first thing is that. Um, Again, we all play individual little games. So, so so it isn't as though the cleaner in the office feels like they're competing with Michelle Obama. Because if they did, they would just walk, they'd just throw themselves out the window. That's not how life works. That cleaner is comparing themselves to the other people in their life, the people they work with, their families, their cousins. They, you know, so, so, so they're not feeling horrific because they're not the king of Thailand. So, so that's, that's not how it's working. It's not, life isn't that brutal. Two, we have amazing imaginations. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're very good at, buffing ourselves up and finding ways of, 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 of see, you know, of seeing we're of value. And I think in a, in a, in a healthy organisation, as I say in the book, you can go to a meeting as the lowest status member of the organisation in that formal status game, make a fantastic contribution and leave feeling like the king of the world, like the best person in the room. And that, and, and if that's a healthy organisation, that's how you'll be made to feel too. You'll be like, oh, it's brilliant. It's amazing. So, 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 so even within those kind of formal games that we play in life, we can still have an encounter, an experience in which we actually feel hugely of value. Um, uh, so, 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 so there's also that to say. So, and there's also, you know, life is a never-ending game. As, as long as we're not suffering from depression, if we're a mentally healthy person, we're a little bit optimistic. We're backing ourselves a bit. You know, that's, that's, that's what people are like. You know, I'm, I feel like I'm going to, I have the capacity to achieve X, Y, and Z. You know, so, 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 so yes, um, there will always be people at the bottom, but, but A, they're probably not going to stay there for very long because the game's so fluid. Mm. And B, that, that, that doesn't mean that they're condemned to a life of constant misery and torture. And, and as you said earlier, they can, you know, they might also play for a Sunday league team exactly. and be top of the league and yeah. captain of that team. Or they could be religious. I mean, yeah. you know, religion is a status game and, and that's a virtue game. It's a, you know, and, and it's often a healthy um, virtue game. You know, in a religious game, I've got to follow the Ten Commandments and to go to the church and or do whatever I've got to do. And then I become a high status Christian or whatever. Mm. And, that's, and that's, you know, that's a big journey I've gone on. I used to be very angry and hostile about religion because of my background. But, but now I see that religion, although it's not for me, mm. it's hugely valuable to people um, because it gives them a status game to play. And meaning and purpose. And, and, exactly. and I, I was the same. Yeah. I was religious up until I was uh, 18, very religious household. And I rejected it quite passionately for many years <laughs> until I stopped caring about it. So <laughs> yeah. now I'm just like, do what you like. I don't care. Yeah, know, exactly. So, which is yeah. a funny arc we kind of go through where it's yeah. like the aggression against it and then the acceptance of it. Um, we have a closing tradition on this podcast where, mm -hmm. where the previous guest asks the next guest a question Okay, right. in the diary, diary. So I get to read it now. Mm -hmm. Jack keeps the diary until this point. Um, we, the question left for you is, when it all gets too dark, what helps you find the light? When it all gets too dark, what helps you find the light? I mean, creation. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's, that really is true. If I'm feeling depressed, um, I just, I've got this, it's quite cheesy, but I've got this little, <laughs> I've got this little saying I say to myself in the head, which is the only way out is art. And, and so if I want to feel good, I'll go and do some work, do some writing. And if I'm proud of it, it'll sort of pull me out of it. So that, that, that's kind of what helps me see the light, my, my, my art. And how does that relate to the status game book? Status game massively because I I feel good about myself. You know, if if I this is my game, 
writing. And if I feel like I've written something good, I feel like there's hope. And it kind of gives you a psychological status boost. Absolutely. Yeah. Because we, you know, we, 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 we have this imaginary audience in our heads. We're, we're not just being judged by other people. We're being judged by ourselves. So, so, so yeah, that, I think that's hugely important. Will, thank you. Incredibly illuminating. And it's given me a, a tremendous amount of food for thought. You know, when we do this podcast, I'm always selfishly <laughs> looking for um, ways that I can make changes to my life or understand the decisions I'm making so that I can make decisions more in line with my values or more in line with where I want to go. And I think your this book in particular, The Status Game, I, I pause every time I say it because I'm scared to get the fucking <laughs> word wrong. The Status Game. Yeah. This book in particular, The Status Game, um, is, is one of those that is tremendously illuminating because it explains so much. It's almost like it's turning a light on in a huge room that I didn't even know was there um, and really revealing to me what, what, what the forces are that are controlling um, much of my decision-making for better or for worse. It's not to say that I will abandon, abandon, try and abandon those forces because I don't actually believe I can. I think that's who I am. But being more conscious about them, which I think is exactly what this book allows you to do as they relate to your relationships, your personal life, your business, is I think something that we can all benefit from. So thank you for writing such an amazing book. And thank you for writing all of these amazing books. But this one in particular um, is my favorite, The Status Game. Came out last year, I believe. Yeah, um, yeah. just down paperback two weeks ago. On paperback two weeks ago. Yeah. And I've had a lot of people specifically, because you've had a few conversations with some friends of mine, really raving about this book. So I highly recommend everybody checks it out. Um, of all these books, I love them all, but this one in particular is my favourite and I, ca I can't be more excited to see what you write next. Fantastic. Thank you for your honesty as well. Not everybody is so willing to be so open and honest and I think there's something so um, so important because it, it, it's, hu it's human and it's truthful about the way you're willing to be honest about your own struggles in your life and the things that you're searching for as it relates to connection and those things. That is... We're all, we're all going through the same battles and hearing that from you as well, I think is particularly uh, important. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your amazing questions too, Stephen. I had a really good time. Thank you. one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.